You can have a Bible education course here, but that would be right in the beginning. Kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a pew chair near you. Or as lots of people do nowadays, you can get your phone out and pull it up on your phone. But uh, anyway, I started uh, a ways back uh, preaching through the book of Genesis, probably more like teaching in many ways. Um, We didn't get too far yet, but I'd like to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. I'm simply going to read several verses, and then we're going to back, go back and look at one concept that is going to be very familiar to you, but at the same time, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Hopefully, we can clear some of that up this morning. It says in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Obviously, God had created, as we found out in verse 1, that He had created the heavens and the earth. And God is in the process now of separating things. Here He's separating the waters on the earth from the waters above the earth. And we'll find out when we get to the next day, he's separating the waters on the earth, or should I say the dry ground that's under the waters of the earth. He's going to separate that. God is in the process of separating and fine-tuning, if you will, from our point of view, what he had created. doesn't make it any less a miracle. It's simply God's working and how he chose to do it, the process that he chose to use. An expanse is simply an extended surface. It doesn't tell you what that surface is necessarily unless you look at the context. In this case, that extended surface is called heaven. Other places you will see it is actually the crust of the earth from other passages. Um, It was very interesting that when they were singing this morning, the verse that was put on the screen was Psalm 33. And in Psalm 33, verse 7, it says that he stores up the deeps, uh, basically below the earth. And we'll talk about that when we get to talking about the flood. Where did the waters from the flood come from? But God is in the process of separating things at their proper place. As I mentioned, expanse. If you use King James Version, it says firmament. It's simply something that's been hammered out. The goldsmiths that made the plating for the temple and the tabernacle would take gold and hammer it out. They would expand it so that they could use it to cover the wood and other things that were covered by gold. Exact same word when they spread that gold out. And he is saying he's making a spread between The water's above, and it doesn't tell us what those waters are. Today, we would look at it and say, it's the clouds. It's the water that is up there, that stays up there most of the time, and then sometimes comes down. I don't understand it today. I hope it comes down in rain instead of snow. I like snow. Uh, Scott likes snow, but uh, you know what? I'm about right here to snow this year, so I'm, I'm for rain this time. But you know what? 
God on the second day said there's water on the earth. And at this point, the earth was still completely covered with water. And now there's water up in the air and there's a separation in between. He called that heaven. That's the concept that we're going to look at today. The whole concept of heaven. I want to ask you a question. You can answer out loud. First thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word heaven. God's what? God's dwelling place. Anybody else? The stars, okay? Oh, yes. Final reward, where we're heading. Yeah, you could go on and on. But one of the things that we don't understand, and the only way you know how heaven is used in the Bible, is by the context and the explanation. For example, it says, the birds of heaven. Hmm. Talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars being in heaven. It also talks about heaven as being the throne room of God or God's abode. It also talks about the final reward, as John said, for those that have trusted Christ. Are they all true? Sounds contradictory. Sounds like there's a problem here. The answer is the Bible's clear. There are three heavens. That's what our main part of our sermon is going to be this morning. Looking at those three heavens. Exact same word. Sometimes, it all depends what version of the Bible you have, the word heaven is translated as sky. Sometimes air. All legitimate translations. How do you know what heaven it's talking about? You look at the context and you look at the explanation and uh, you can very easily figure out where, that, where that's looking toward. So let's, with that in mind... Uh, as we look at this, and what we're doing is expanding on the second day of creation. Heaven simply is a designation for a specific place. And in most cases, it's a place that is called an expanse. It's something that's spread out. As we already looked at many sermons ago, in the beginning, God created the heavens, notice it's plural, and the earth. One of the things that we will look at, and I'm going to tell you right now up front, I'm going to give you my opinion about one thing today. The rest of it I think I can back up from the Bible. But did God create just the first and second heaven? Did he create the third heaven? I'm not sure. If I come back a year from now and tell you I figured it out, I'll be glad to let you know. But I'm not going to tell you, oh, in some ways I look at it and go, it's the abode of God, it's eternal. And then I look at it and go, hold it a second. When I look at the book of Revelation and other places, there are things in there that would be of creation. So I'm not sure. I'm seriously not sure whether he created the third heaven or not. Is it just the presence of God and it always was there? Or is it part of what God created? I don't actually know. If anybody knows the final answer to that, I'll be glad to listen to you. Right now, I don't have that. But the other two... Without a doubt. How do I know? Let's look at what they are. For example, this is the verses that we already looked at. And he says that there were waters below the expanse and there were waters above the expanse. And it was so. In between there, there was an extended portion of real estate that God said is heaven. What heaven is that? That is the band between the crust of the earth and the clouds. 
And one other thing I'm not 100% sure of because it, it kind of goes both ways. Are the clouds part of the first heaven or are they above it? Or are they part of the second heaven? And again, uh, are, are they part of the first heaven or are they above it? Or are they part of the second heaven? It seems in some cases you can't draw a real fine line there. And that's all I will say about that. But the first heaven is what we would call the atmosphere. It's the air we breathe. It's where the birds fly. It's all of those things. It contains oxygen to sustain life. God created it that way. Let's look at those passages that have to do with that and expand on that. As I already said, and by the way, there are a whole lot of other things I'll bring at the end of this point that God says are true of heaven. This is an artist's rendering. It's nothing official, but you'll notice it represents the three heavens that uh, God has created or that exist. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, right after the passage we've just read, it says, Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. So he is making it very clear on the week of, a, of creation that birds were meant to fly in the heavens. And that's what he says. The, the birds that he is creating, they are going to fly in the open expanse of the heaven that he had just created. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 24, it says, The one belonging to Ahab, and by the way, this is a pronouncement of judgment on Ahab. It gets a little gory here. The one belonging to Ahab, who dies in the cities, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven shall eat. Now, that's a gory story. You recognize Ahab and Jezebel uh, just about thumbed their nose at God and everything that was good and proper and right. And God said, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's your punishment. The shame that comes because you have chosen to live this way. If you die in the city and you're a part of the family of Ahab, the dogs that roamed the streets would eat you. Remember... When they ate Jezebel, they left the the skull and the hands and the feet. I think it's because she was so corrupt, the dogs wouldn't even eat her brain, her hands, and her feet. That's my opinion, but that's what it looks like. But then it says the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven. We would call those creatures like vultures and crows and, and birds that eat carrion. They would be there as the cleanup crew. Pretty gross, but our point is this. These are birds that fly in heaven. It doesn't stop there when you come to the New Testament. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. And most translations will say air. But if you check it out in the concordance, you will find the words. The word is actually heaven. Look at the birds of heaven. That they do not sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Now notice the word heaven, or a derivative of it, appears twice here. We have a heavenly father. From what I know of the rest of Scripture, our heavenly father's abode is in the third heaven. But he is also a God who is not simply in the third heaven, who kind of looks down as the great architect of the universe and the one who decides 
what goes on and from afar looks down. But he is the one, as we will see in, in, in a few moments, he is the one that sent Jesus Christ to come down and take up residence and dwell among us on the crust of the earth in the first heaven, that we could know him personally and interact with him personally, and that he would live and die and be raised again from the dead in our presence to show that sin and death had been conquered. To show us that we can have God's kind of life. That we can have power to live for the Lord and live for His glory. And so, uh, he says, look at the birds. They, they don't have to deal with these things. And your heavenly Father, the one up in the third heaven, is the one who looks down and takes care of them. Aren't you worth a whole lot more than a sparrow? I don't know about you, but I grew up on a farm and nobody likes sparrows. Or pigeons. I call them flying rats. You, I'm sorry if you like pigeons, but they're flying rats. They're dirty. You know what? God takes care of them. Think about this. If you haven't thought before, your heavenly Father cares a whole lot more about you than He does birds. Even the birds of the first heaven. Daniel says that there is a dew that comes from heaven. Other passages, for example, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17 says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. Another time of judgment where people are going to be dying in mass amounts, and the birds are going to be the cleanup crew for that judgment day. And he says they fly right in the middle of heaven, the first heaven. In Psalm 148, verse uh, 4, it says this, Praise Him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Notice, they too, He separated the waters that are on the earth and the waters above the earth. Again, all through Scripture, He makes it clear that there's a heaven that's defined by earth and the clouds and the birds. I mentioned uh, a moment ago in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says these things. Rain from heaven, the dew of heaven, the birds of heaven, the dust from heaven, walls of a city that are fortified to heaven. Smoke rises in the midst of heaven. The heavens are shut, as in when no rain came. There's frost that comes from heaven. There's clouds of heaven. There's snow from heaven. There's hail from heaven. And the east winds blow in the heavens. That's the first heaven. We don't normally think of that as heaven. But God says it is. That expanse is, named by God, from the very first week of creation, heaven. But it's not the abode of God. Then there is a second heaven. This one here we find in passages, for example, like uh, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament declareth His righteousness. His handiwork, I'm sorry. His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. And night unto night, knowledge. The psalmist said, the heavens where the sun dwells, because he goes on to talk about the sun going across the sky, is the place that's the second heaven. 
How do I know it's the second heaven? He never calls the first one the first heaven. Never calls this the second heaven. But he does call the third one the third heaven. Everything I know about any logical, rational way of thinking says if there's a third, there had to be a first and a second. I don't know of anything that differs from that. So there's a second heaven. It's the one that God makes clear has the great lights and the planets and the stars in them. In fact, as in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 14, we haven't gotten that far there, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And it goes on in verse 16 to say, He made the two great lights, the greater one to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. Oh, and by the way, this is the always kind of makes me laugh and smile when I look at that. Oh, he made the stars also. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but uh, have you ever tried to count the stars? And we can't even see most of them. It's an impossible job. But it's just, oh, yeah, by the way, oh, he, he made the stars also. They are noted to be a part of the expanse of the heavens. Now, we know they're not in the atmosphere. They're above that. They're not in the third heaven because it it makes it clear, uh, and we haven't seen that passage yet, but God is above even that. So we look at all of these things. And by the way, notice, and I'll, I'll point this out later on in a future sermon, He didn't make the sun so we would have light. Light already existed He simply made a specific light and a specific for daytime and a specific reflection, as we know, the moon for nighttime. So that we could tell day and night, so we could tell the seasons and those types of things. And for many years, that's how people did those things. We kind of go by a calendar now that doesn't necessarily always jive exactly with that. But the truth of the matter is, that's why God gave them, so we could tell time. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, it's a very interesting passage when we deal with the stars of heaven. God is promising to Abraham some very very great things. And it says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies." God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to bless you like the multitude of the stars. I can't grasp that. I just can't grasp it. Even if you could count the stars in the sky, you can only count the ones you could see within your view. You got the rest of the way around the world to count them. He says, okay, give you another one. Go to the seashore and start counting the pebbles, the little grains of sand. Well, the thing is, it's mind-boggling. When we look at the first heaven, that's mind-boggling enough. Then we look at the second heaven, and it has all these wonderful planets and stars and the sun just beyond our imagination. Heaven's a wonderful thing. By the way, I'm glad the first heaven has air because I'd be preaching to a bunch of dead people because you can last about three, four minutes without oxygen. By the way... Preachers, as windy as we are, we wouldn't even last that long. We'd just conk out and you'd conk out a minute later. The point is, I'm glad for the first heaven. 
And I am sure glad for the second heaven. What a great God we have. Look at the magnificence of His creation. But that's only the things that we can actually grasp to some extent. Remember, why did He do it? Psalm 19, the heavens are telling, declaring the glory of God. The sun He has placed there. But if we ended with that, well, we'd have a good astronaut program and we would have some research here on this earth. But that's not what we normally think about as heaven. We think of the third heaven. That's God's dwelling place. It's also called paradise. It's it's a direct equivalent today. It's his throne room. It's his eternal abode. And by the way, when I see eternal abode, I start thinking, well, it couldn't have been created. Uh, So that's why I'm, I'm still in a mix there. And as we mentioned before, it's the final abode of true believers. So let's look at that heaven and see what God says. If you remember from the passages uh, in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, you will know that God makes it clear, for example, in Psalm 136, verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. Lots of other gods with a small g in this world. They've been there and they will continue to be there. But this is the God of heaven, unique that Heaven is His. No other God dwells there. He alone is unique among the gods with a small g. He is the one that created everything else. He is the only one that lives in heaven. Remember, the only one that said, I will be like the Most High, was kicked out. We call him Satan or the devil today. Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The New Testament tells us He's an eternal king. And a king has the right to sit on a throne. That throne is in heaven. The third heaven. And Psalm 68 says, To him who rides upon the highest heavens, he is above and beyond. When you ride on something, you're on top of that yet. He is higher than the highest heavens the ones that we can see, the ones that we can interact with to some extent. In fact is, Jesus himself said, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool for his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, he says, all of these other things uh, aren't the final one. Heaven is the place where God dwells. It's His throne. In fact, is when we look at God's model prayer, the one Jesus gave to His disciples, it says, pray this way, Our Father who is in heaven. That doesn't mean God doesn't come down and interact with us. But that is His permanent dwelling place. But then we come to the one that I'm going to ask you if you'd want to turn there. I'm going to have a part of this passage there. But if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
I believe very clearly the Apostle Paul is referring to himself in this passage. There are a number of reasons why, at the end, I think it's abundantly clear. Because he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. I believe he is absolutely talking about himself, even though he seemed to be talking in the third person at times. And there it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. So here's where we find that phrase. We didn't have to invent it. God gave it to us. There's a third heaven. It's obviously a place that is different than the other heavens. They have physical things. Uh, We can explore them. God says you can say anything you want about the moon and the sun. We're still trying to figure out a lot of things. We don't know how everything works, but we're trying. We spent billions and billions and probably trillions of dollars by now trying to figure some of these things out. But this is one where the Apostle Paul ascended to. And he doesn't know how it all happened. He doesn't have a great explanation. But he says, I don't even know. Was I in the body, out of the body? I don't know, but God does. I just know I was there. He says in verse 3, And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I cannot know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. You'll notice the direct equivalent here. There was a time when paradise was a part of Sheol or Hades. If you're not familiar with the teaching, let me go back and you can find this in Luke chapter uh, 17. Where it's talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And we find a lot of the teaching there. Simply this. Before the ascension of Jesus Christ, before his resurrection and ascension. If you were a believer, you went to Hades. Sheol, as the Hebrew says, if you were an unbeliever and you died, you went to Sheol or Hades. You go, what? Hold it a second. That doesn't sound right. Go back and check it out and you'll find out that it was a place of the departed dead. And on one side, and and I half jokingly call it the air conditioned side, the other side was in the furnace. But in between was like this aisle here and nobody could go over it. You couldn't pass from one side to the other. You could obviously communicate and see across. Look at the, the, the account that, that is given in, in Luke. You, you could see across it. But one side, they were in torment and agony. Those that had rejected the Messiah were in agony. It was a foreshadow of what was to come. It's not hell. It's not the lake of fire. Many translations use the word hell for Hades and Sheol. It, it confuses people. The lake of fire is what we normally call hell. But it says in the end of the book of Revelation, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So the final end is not Hades. It is the lake of fire, which we normally call hell. But they are still there. On the other hand, the other side, which was called paradise. Remember he said to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Okay, It was also called Abraham's bosom, the air-conditioned side, the good side. All believers went there. It was temporary. Jesus led captivity captive when he ascended, and he took them. Now paradise is a part of heaven. That's why you can have the direct equivalent here. 
The book of Revelation uh, talks about it as the paradise of God when he's talking to the seven churches. Point is this. The good side, Abraham's bosom, paradise is empty. The other side is still full and being populated in that whole thing. But Paul said, I went up to paradise, the third heaven. And there I heard things, inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. He says, I saw stuff. I heard things that I am not allowed to tell you. Now, we know about the first heaven. We know a little bit about the second heaven. The third heaven, we have some things written about it. We know it's the presence of God, and we know other things from the book of Revelation and other passages of Scripture. But the truth of the matter is, we know very little about heaven. We simply know it's eternal. It's the place where we are in God's presence. We know about hell. It's the place where God is not present. The lake of fire, it's place of torment also, but God is not there. Wow, it's a scary thing. And when you look at this, I have a challenge for you that has to do not so much with creation, but if you look at this whole concept of heaven, you realize that if you're going to heaven and somebody else that you know hasn't trusted Christ, they're not going to be with you. They're not going to be able to enjoy this inexpressible uh, atmosphere that you are going to enjoy for all eternity. Verse 5 says, On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. For I do not wish to boast. Uh, for if, if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish. For I, was, I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. The Apostle Paul said, even if I was allowed to tell you why wouldn't, because I'd get a fat head. He would have been the only person that went to heaven and came back and could describe it to everyone else. Can you imagine the draw he would be? like a three-ring circus with only one guy. He could draw a crowd anytime he spoke. He could make big bucks doing that. He says, I'm not going to do that. Because first of all, I'm not permitted to do that. And then he says, because of the suppressing greatness of the revelations, that's the unveiling, the things that he saw, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. The Apostle Paul was there. He saw it. Came back and said, can't even tell you how great it is. I want to go there. The abode for all eternity? By trusting Christ, anyone can go there. It's an open invitation. Trust God. Your final destination is heaven in the very presence of God with things that we can't even today describe. On the other hand, we know that the opposite of that is horrors that we cannot even imagine. Truth of the matter is, the challenge for me, for you, is if we know that to be true and you believe that to be true, you will open your mouth. You will be giving the gospel. You will give testimony to the great work that Christ has done. In fact, as the next passage we're going to look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That doesn't mean God isn't judging people now. But that great wrath to come, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for the one who's going to take me away from the wrath to come. Rescues us from that. But notice who it is. It's His Son, of course referring to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who came from heaven. The Trinity dwells in heaven. Jesus Christ set aside for a time. His exalted privilege as the eternal God to come and dwell among us. Wow, what love, what graciousness, what mercy. He has done that for us. But notice where he came from. He came from heaven. We also know that he rose from the dead and now has returned to heaven. Of course, he is going to come back again. We're going to see that here in a moment. But we need to understand. Three heavens, when we breathe, the air we breathe, I'm sorry, and the birds fly. The heavens that declare the glory of God, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and then God's abode. But there's something that is even greater than that. If you look at Psalm 148, it has a number of things to say. Verse 4 says, Praise Him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. But then you skip down to verse 13. It says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Notice. Our goal is not so much heaven itself. Even though it's the third heaven and a wonderful, glorious, inexpressible place. Our goal is to be in the presence of God Himself. He is above and beyond every part of creation. Everything that can be touched or felt or seen. He is above all of those things. That's our goal. If we have a goal that's less than that. Oh, I'm saved. I'm glad I'm not going to go to hell. That's great. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. Well, that's good. But I want to be with the Lord for all eternity. That's our mindset that we should have. Day 3, verse 9 of Genesis chapter 1. It says, Then the Lord said, Let the waters below heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. I told you that God began the separating process. Here it doesn't say separate. It calls it gathered. It says the waters were gathered into one place and the dry land appears. It's sort of like the dry land came up through the waters. It was always there. You just couldn't see it. The word that it uses in the version I use, it says appeared. It means you encountered it for the first time. You experienced it. It became visible for the first time. It had been there all along. And God is shaping the earth. At first, as you well know from the first verses of Genesis chapter 1, the whole earth was covered with water. And now, for the first time, the dry land appears. And God, who is in the process of naming things as He does it. Remember, He called the expanse heaven, as we just spent our time on. He says, God called the dry land earth, verse 10, and the gatherings of the waters 
He called the seas. God, from the very beginning, didn't say, well, I'll leave it up to man to decide what to call it. He says, no, I'm going to give it the name. When you create something, it's yours. When you name it, it doubly becomes yours. God said, it's mine for my glory, and I want you to know that. Now I'd like you to turn to one last passage before we end the service this morning. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. I have a few, uh, pa- a few v- words from that passage uh, in my slides above me, but I'd like you to look at it because I believe this is very much describing not only this time on the third day where the dry land appears, but it goes on to what happened at Noah's time and what is going to happen in the future. God makes it clear that he has a plan from the very beginning. But know this, this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. But know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So here's what it is. They were doing it in the days of Peter, and they still do it today. You're waiting for Christ. You think he's coming back. He's going to rescue you. you there's a God who, who cares about you and is going to come and rescue you and, you know, really going to take you aside. You've got to be kidding. It's eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow you die. You're like a dog. That's, that's the end of it. They were telling Peter. Peter said they're mockers. They're following their own lusts. Verse 5 says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water. I believe that is referring very specifically to the week of creation. He says, when they maintain this, when when they uh, delight in this kind of thinking, they're saying, you know what? Nothing's ever going to change. It's going to continue on just like it is. It's all downhill. There's no hope. He says, something escapes their notice. They're ignorant of something. They've willfully shut their eyes to what God said he's going to do. Now look at this. The next phrase is that by the word of God, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water. Day three, God said, let the dry land appear. It was all water before that. And out of that water, the dry land appeared. Earth was, from the very beginning, formed out of that water. That's creation. But right in the middle of verse five, and by water, through which the world that at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. The through which goes right back to God's Word. It's hard to see that in an English Bible because that's the very end of verse 5 and verse 6 is referring to that. It refers back. Through which? So it's the Word of God that created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it. The dry land appears. And at the Noah's flood, He spoke it and the flood came. Now, we'll talk about the flood when we get to that part of Genesis. But it's God's word. God declared it. God spoke it. And it happened. 
And then notice in Noah's day, and by water, through which the world at that time destroyed, being flooded by, with water. He destroyed it with water. So it came out of water. He destroyed it with water. And both times, it was because he uttered it and it was done. The interesting thing is, we haven't come to the end of the passage. Follow with me in verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In the same way that God spoke the earth and the heavens into existence, by the way he spoke dry land to appear, by the way he spoke the flood to happen, he says, it says here that he is going to speak the word, and not by water this time, but by fire he's going to bring judgment. And everything's going to be changed. We know that it says the very elements will be burned up when he does this last one. It's a complete, utter destruction of the creation that has been tainted by sin and ruined by the fall. He is going to, by his word, destroy them by fire. I mentioned, if you have trusted Christ and you know you're going to the third heaven, and not just to be in heaven, but God's presence... That should motivate you a whole lot more than, well, people might be going to hell. We should understand that judgment is real. Whether it's the lake of fire, the final end of those that have not trusted Christ, or judgment on this earth, God judges sin. We know that. But we also know that there's a remedy for that judgment because all of us are guilty. Not a single one of us has escaped. Only the Lord Jesus Christ Himself did not sin. But we have a message, a message of hope and truth and love and forgiveness and redemption and rescue. We need to speak up. You go, I didn't know that talking about creation could be anything that motivates us to evangelize and to give testimony and to live a life of example before the world. The answer is everything that God does is for His glory and reminds us of what He has done, how strong He is. If He is the Creator and could speak these things into existence out of nothing, He is also the one that can bring resurrection. He is also the one that loves us enough to send Christ to die in our place and raise Him up and take Him back into heaven where He is waiting to come back to rescue those from the wrath to come. We have a message. It's a serious message. God judges sin. But we also have a greater message that because He loves us, cares for us, He has paid for that sin. That's our reminder this morning. We have a great message. Will they mock? Oh yeah, they will. The whole world is mocking doesn't make it any more true or less true. It's still the truth. The God of creation is the God of recreation. The God who has given us a message of hope and love. A message of redemption. Do we just say, oh yeah, we believe in God. We want Him to be glorified. Or do we actually speak up and do something about it? I I know I'm going to heaven. You know what? I want to take a lot of people with me. 
That's what I want to do. I encourage you in the same way. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, we've covered a lot of territory today. We thank you that from heaven you see us. In heaven you want to be glorified by us. And Lord, we will glorify you if we've trusted Christ for all eternity. And Lord, you've entrusted to us a message to give to the world. Help us not to be negligent. Lord, we will be serving the God of all creation and the God of recreation. Won't be easy. Won't be cheap. But Lord, it's the only thing that brings hope to a world that's awaiting final judgment by fire. Lord, help us to be your tools, your instruments, your ambassadors for who you are and what you have done. We thank you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.